Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve Happy Easter. Have, have, you, have you ever sometimes thought at how Christmas, and Christmas is a special time. It is the incarnation. It is celebrating God coming in human flesh. It's great. But our faith circles around Easter. And for some reason, Christmas seems to take the low, don't you find? Like if, if Christmas falls on a Sunday then we just, we don't have, it's not, no sense having a service because everyone wants to be with family and, and I certainly understand that. And when Easter falls on a Sunday, and for those of you who don't know, Easter falls always on a Sunday. <laughs> it's a little different. I just kind of find that it is, it is an interesting thing. And I've got one point that I want to make, that I want to drive home, that I think is important for us today. Christmas we are in awe. Easter, we become aware. And so what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be reading from Matthew's version of the resurrection. It is found in Matthew chapter 28. It's the first 10 verses. There's a point in it that, that's kind of hit me. And if you have your, your Bible apps or if you have your Bibles with you, then I invite you at this time to kind of find that first book of the New Testament. It's not too hard to find New Testament, you know, the last chapter of that particular book. It says this. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down and from the heavens and, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were like snow. The guards were afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Um, women said, sorry, women said, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here and has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will know him, you, there you will see him, I and know that I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Really inspiring. Sometimes we have read it so many times. This, for some of you, this might be like the 60th Easter message you have heard. You're thinking, I don't know if, if, if I can hear it in any different way. But the truth still rings true. The spirit of Easter still rings true. Verse 8 is important to me as I take a look at that. It said, they hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. Now I took a look at that particular passage of scripture and said, is it possible to have those two emotions at the same time? They were afraid. They were joyful. Hey, how's that work? 
kind of interesting when you take a look at it. Is it possible, is it possible to be afraid and to be joyful at the same time? Apparently, it is. And Easter is the story of the gospel. Now, the Greek term for gospel is euangelion. It's kind of where we get our name evangelism, which is basically telling the good news. The term euangelion means good news, or when you see you, it's kind of where we get the term euphoria. It kind of goes beyond good. It is joyful news. This is what Easter is all about. Easter is joyful news. And that's a great thing. But I put that as I take a look today. As we face challenges in our society. That our society isn't as open to the good news, the joyful news as it used to be. And as things have piled up upon us, I begin to ask myself the question, if Easter is joyful news, should we not be joyful people? And it seems to me that somewhere along the way, many of us have lost our joy. Let me ask a question. What does your joy meter look like? Where is it? Well, it's kind of inside. But if you have a barbecue, if you have a barbecue, they kind of have that temperature gauge on it, and sometimes it doesn't work, and you have to kind of tap that gauge so that it kind of springs to life or something. Do you have to tap your joy gauge? What is it at? If I were to talk to your friend and ask your friend, what words would you use to describe this friend? Would joyful be a word that they would use to describe you. Ouch. Has your joy leaked out? If so, my goal is this, to once again change your perspective back. I've heard people say, well, have you really stopped and considered what we've kind of been through? Do you realize what's happening in the world around us? You don't really understand what I am going through. And that might be true, but the joy that I'm talking about and what the Bible talks about is more of a state of being than an emotion. It is a perspective birthed and maintained through the Easter reality. And when the Bible begins to talk about joy, basically says a number of wonderful things. And the one thing that it says that the fullness of joy is in his presence. All you have to do is take, take a look at the passage of Scripture in Psalm verses 16, verse 11. In his presence is fullness of joy. When Peter is talking to a church which is wounded, he's saying a whole bunch of things, and he's talking and getting them back to perspective, and he begins to talk about this joy, and he uses a term, Christian joy. He talks about it, and he says, it is inexpressible. It is glorious. For those of you who know the song, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. On top of that, if we take a look, as he is saying this, there were many people at that time who may have been alive when the resurrection had happened. But a number of years later, the situation is a little bit tough. That many people have been killed. Many of their relatives may have been in prison. Many people have lost their job. People who owned businesses 
many times would not have people run those businesses because of the faith that they were professing. There are people at that time who, when they accepted Jesus as their savior, their family had a funeral for them, even though they were still alive. And in the midst of all this suffering, in the midst of all the difficulties that they were taking, he was saying, you know, there is a joy that is inexpressible, can't be taken away. In the midst of that, he talks about it. And the church becomes known for this thing, which is called joy. Paul, in particularly, begins to talk about it a whole bunch. You know, we think many times the, the, the shortest verse of the Bible is John chapter 11, verse 35, which says, Jesus wept. If you look at the Greek Bible, that's not true. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, says, it says this in the NIV, rejoice evermore. Now you can say there's more, less words in Jesus wept than rejoice evermore, but in the Greek it's different. So if you're doing trivia, maybe you can kind of use that sometime. Rejoice evermore. Don't ever stop being joyful. Even after you're dead, you be joyful evermore is what it says. And what Paul goes on to say in the Philippians church that had a lot of trouble in it said this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And if you didn't hear me the first time, I'll say it again. Rejoice. And Paul, as he's talking to the Galatian crew, says, you know what? You need to walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit becomes evident in you. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, you can't really compete with love. Love's kind of the big kahuna, is it not? But the first thing after that is joy. Nehemiah says this, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Bible begins to talk deeply into this thing. The real question we have to ask ourselves is, what is your joy based upon? What is it rooted in? What is the real foundation that your joy is built upon? If it's on the economy, if it's on your career, if it's on your business, if it is in your relationships with your family or whatever, as nice as they may be or as neutral as they may be, true joy comes from the Easter experience. What's your theology of joy? Joy, I have this written down. I, this is just kind of something that as I was thinking about, I think we have it down on our slide here. Um, if we could come to that. Yeah, joy is an inner contentment or happiness based on the reality and repercussions of the resurrected Christ, which transcends current difficulties, difficulties, circumstances, and trials. It's something which happens because we realize what Christ has done in our lives. And if I could do anything this morning, if I could somehow offer that to you, if I could somehow convince you, other than Easter Day, of this reality, it will change you. It will bring joy that will not be taken away despite what is going on in your life. So if you give me a couple minutes. I think that there's three things, three realities of the Easter story that brings us joy. The first one is we are joyful because of what he did. Now, if you take a look at the Bible and you, you understand um, some of the things that, that people went to, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to talk about the power of God, you talked about Passover, Incredible experience where God delivers the, 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 the people from, from Egypt and, and slavery. And, and that, that was seen as a, a powerful time. But if you look at the New Testament, 
you have to look at the resurrection. And if God can raise himself from the dead, is anything too difficult for God? He shows his power. But the ramifications of his power and the realization of his power is great. But you also need to realize God's provision. What exactly did he do? What does it mean that he actually rose from the dead? Well, it kind of suits and, and, and seals the idea of we are here by the grace of God. That if you are here and you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're just kind of at that point where you're trying to figure things out, we come to the realization that we are all sinners, that we are all deserving to be lost, and we are hopelessly lost. But when Easter came, when he died, when he rose again, he paid an incredible price for our sin. And the resurrection reveals the fact that the price has been paid. And when you consider Easter, there is joy due to the fact that God has done something so incredibly huge in our lives that not only does it last the rest of our lives, it takes us all the way through into eternity. And I try, I try to figure this out. I try to, to, to equate this in, in language that we can understand. And I still have a difficult time. Imagine if, imagine if I have a debt of like $5 billion. And if I don't pay the $5 billion, I am going to prison for the rest of my life. I'm going to go in solitary confinement. I won't see anybody for the rest of my life. And somehow someone, through no help of my own, pays that debt. Or perhaps I'm in prison for another reason. That I have done an unspeakable crime. Think of the worst crime that could possibly be, be sentenced upon me. And I am stuck there. They have thrown the key away. They have all but forgotten about me. And someone says, I will pay the price for you. Or maybe I am somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Is that possible? I don't know. I fall into a deep pit. And that pit is so deep that I cannot, in my own strength, get myself out of that. I am hopelessly lost and someone comes and rescues me. The feelings that you feel, the gratitude that you have, the realization that your life was over, but now it's not over. Huge ramifications. The best I could think of was that I remember a time, oh, 15 years ago, I think, maybe a little bit less than that. We had one vehicle in our family. I have three children. And that vehicle was probably around 300,000 kilometers at that time. It was a van. It was one of those times where every time we traveled a long distance, we kind of anointed the van with oil and prayed that it would make it. And at that time, I was working. My wife was working on the other side of the city. My son was going to school at a university. My daughter was going to school at a college. And my other daughter was going to school at a vocational college, all three different locations. And two of them worked. On top of that, we had all of our church activities. Suffice it to say, I didn't have much time on my hands. And I was getting to the point where I didn't know what to do because at that point in my life when I had that many kids and all the things that were taking place, we had nothing to be able to afford a new vehicle or anything like that. I didn't really know what to do. All I knew was that I was getting hopelessly tired. And a friend came in and said, listen, my daughter has just gotten married. She borrowed my car, and so she's given it back to me, and now I'm giving my car 
to you. Praise the Lord. And it was a standard, so I was the only one that could drive it. So the rest of the kids and my wife, you can have that one. This one's mine. Although I still did lots of riding. But I remember at that time, folks, I remember how it was such a hopeless situation. And out of nowhere, an act of kindness made me feel a level of gratitude. Just a level of happiness that came over that there was a, a, a stream of light in darkness. That car has been in the junkyard for seven years now. Really. The comparison of that story and what Jesus did is not even in comparison. You multiply that by millions and millions, you will get what we have in terms of the Easter story. That, that I think somewhere along the way, the fact that we are so, so far removed from the, the event itself or the fact that we have heard the story so many times, we forget the fact that there is a level of joy from what has happened in our issues. And can I just kind of remind you of the ramifications, just quickly, I just, just quickly tell you. Now, like Galatians chapter 3, 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse from us. He has bought us. He has purchased our contract. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, says that he made a show of it openly. It's kind of like an analogy. If you win a war and they all of a sudden just kind of expose the, the enemy and all these things, this is kind of the analogy that he gives. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he says that Christ has done all these things, becoming a, the term is propitiation. Maybe if you've been reading your Bible, you've kind of said expiation, propitiation, those kind of big words, and kind of figure what exactly has to do with, well, expiation, that term, is a term that deals with the fact that, that Christ has kind of covered the price of the sin. Propitiation deals with the fact that we subside the wrath of God. There's a level of mercy in propitiation. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7 here. If you want to write those down, then please feel free to do so. That's that passage where God says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those. Again, that term redeem, right? Revite us back. And what he did was he changed the relationship with us. No longer are you a slave. You are a son. But you are a son at the point where you cry out, Abba, Father, is what it says. There's a level of intimacy in there. And when that happens, it says that God puts the spirit in your heart. And no longer are you a slave. You are a child. And if you are a child, it says, then you are an heir. Stop and consider that. You know, even in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, Romans, Romans 8 may be the, the uh, most powerful epistles in all the letters that were written in the New Testament. It starts with this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus shall set you free from the law of sin and death. In Hebrews chapter 12, you know, Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, and, and, and he talks about these cloud of witnesses, and it talks about Jesus, who for the joy before him endures the cross, scorning its shame. And maybe if you were a person at, at, at 2023, that may not hit us so much, but if you were a person at that particular time, the only way you saw getting saved was that you were obeying the law, but the problem was you couldn't obey the law. It was impossible to do. And so what happens as a result of that is that it says in, in Romans 8 and 11, there is Romans 8 again, 
that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. It will quicken your mortal body. It's because of what he did. If we consider it again, what he has done. But that's not the only thing. It's also because of who he is. That he is God. The fact that it is God, it reveals the fact that he had to be God if he can raise himself from the dead. And, and here's the thing. Joy is found in the reality that this God took the initiative. If anybody tells you that every faith system is the same, that basically they are, they are superficially different but fundamentally the same, don't believe them for a second. The truth is the opposite. Because Easter proves the fact that while other religions have a God that is way up there and you have to make rules and, and, and maybe you'll get there, Easter and Jesus talk about the fact that God came down and dwelt among us. That there's a huge difference between the one. That, that every religion claims that there's a God who permits his devotees to suffer. But only Christianity recognizes a God who entered into that suffering himself. And it's hugely different. God came. God came. Paid for your sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. I like 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's that word again. That God is the one who pursues us. It's such a wonderful thing. Joy comes with the expression of love of the one who made us, but also the extent to which he goes through. There's a hymn. And, and, and many of us uh, who have been in the church for any length of time have probably sung this hymn. The, the chorus goes something like this. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Okay, there are a few of you still there. There's a line in that first stanza that says this, that Christ would devote his sacred head for such a worm as I. Oh, you're kind of getting carried away there, are you not? No, that is the correct comparison. That if you stop and consider who you are, to pick one of us out in the midst of this room is one thing. To pick one of us out in this city is one thing. To pick one of us out within this country, upon this world, which is a dot in our universe, the God who created that universe, somehow, because of his love, dies for you, sets a price for you. True joy comes when we consider what God did, but also who God is in comparison to who we are. Because of what he did, because of who he is, and finally, because of what he promises to do. Now, if somebody rises from the dead, that gives them a little bit of credibility, don't you think? Anybody here rose himself from the dead? Anyone? Anyone? No. It's a pretty good trick. And so you would think that if a person does that, that everything else that they said was true. 
And therefore, when you realize that Jesus rose from the dead, you begin to go back and say, what is it that he did say? What are the promises that he put in my life? I go and prepare a place for you. Nobody can pluck you from my hand. I'm going to go, but my spirit is going to go in you. When I go, the Holy Spirit will come in power. You'll be my witnesses. And it goes on and on and on. And we realize that God has done so many things for us. I like Romans chapter 15, verse 13. I put it up here and said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And it goes on, it says that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That this joy is a gift that is sourced through his character and powered by his promises. And if we go and continue on, and it talks about joy, it talks about times of thanksgiving in, in Psalm chapter 24, verse 4, and, and in Psalm chapter 81, verses 1 and 2, it, 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 it equates having joy with singing songs of praise and thanks and, and all these combinations here. And, and when you stop and consider hope and joy, that they are kind of two sides of the same coin, that you really can't have joy unless you have hope. And joy comes as a result of the hope of something absolutely fantastic which has happened in our life. And it's such a wonderful thing when we stop and consider it, that they're intertwined. But Easter, if it's not the foundation of your faith, then you will find temporary joy. You will find happy times that last for a little while and eventually bring you back to the place where you're needing more. And if I could give you one gift this Easter, if I could guarantee you something, the gift of joy, then I think as your pastor, I would do a great thing. And if I could extend it past this day, and if the reality of Easter became part of your fiber, then all of a sudden you will realize that there is a joy that is independent of what's happening. It transcends this world, and it can't be taken away. So can we refresh ourselves in the fact that Easter is a reality. And that happens in the midst of the fact that maybe someone in your life has died over the last year, and this is the first year that you're celebrating Easter without that individual. Or maybe you lost your job, or maybe your career has been sidetracked, or maybe your marriage is broken down, or a relationship, or you've made a huge mistake, or a tragic event you are dealing with is amongst you. Or maybe you are facing a level of injustice that you can't bear. Or a sickness you are fighting or a persecution that you are currently facing. Or maybe there's just news of war. And the fact that there are people who are close to us who have been in a war and have lost their homes and have lost their livelihoods and are in the midst of trying to figure everything out which is taking place in their lives. Or maybe it's the fear of death. Or maybe... It's a dead-end rut that you can't escape. Or maybe it's a dark cloud that you seem to follow or seems to follow you or a depression that you can't escape. Easter perspective offers you joy in the midst of that. It does. Believe me, it does. I'm not too sure what you're facing. I'm not too sure the dilemma that you're in. All I know is that the word of God is true and the resurrection is true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13... 
You know, it's kind of the love chapter, the one we kind of see at all the weddings and the ones that we kind of go to to make ourselves feel good about and just kind of think about love. Right near the end, Paul makes a statement. He says, you know what? We look, it says in the King James Version, we look through a glass darkly. That's what it says. Now, commentators think that at that time, the mirrors in Corinth were not backed with the lining that we have, that we see clearly. They kind of had more of a bronze or a dark backing. And so when you looked at the mirror, you weren't really looking clearly into your image. It was kind of a vague, it was kind of really, really kind of, I can kind of grasp it, but it's not really clear. And Paul is saying something there. We see through a glass darkly. We really don't know everything. We can only think about what is prepared for us in heaven. But joy is rooted in the fact that it transcends this world. It transcends this day and age. It transcends your present circumstance. It transcends your personal problems and your handicaps. And the other thing is this, that, that Christ's resurrection not only transforms the way I live, but it transforms the way I die. Can I give you hope? Can I present to you a fresh and a new in the midst of your situation? A joy that cannot be taken away. Most of us know who the author J.R.R. Tolkien is. He's the one who wrote the books, The Lord of the Rings, that made like a gazillion dollars in the movies a few years ago. And he was a Christian man. And they reported him one time a number of years ago. He's been dead for a number of years. But he said, you know what? There is, there is a form of writing, a particular type of story. He says, I call them eucatastrophes. That's what he calls it. That's what he terms it. And he, he says it's kind of like uh, catastrophe with joy at the beginning. He calls it the joyful catastrophe. And he says, people really, really become happy in these kind of stories. And he says, the storyline often goes to the fact that there is no hope for, ha for victory. And all of a sudden, victory is snatched from the laws of defeat. And usually it's a person whose weakness turns out to be a strength. And, and, and their, their defeat turns into be this huge victory. And he calls it the joyful catastrophe. And he says, the reason I think so many people like this was because there was a real story of that that took place. He says it's kind of like a bass note that goes boom and reverberates and reverberates. And he says the story and the reality of Easter reverberates so that when we hear the story again or something similar, it resonates with us. I think that there's something to that. That there was a real hero. That we were really rescued. And there is something to be joyful about. You know, one person said to me, and I believe it to be true, about the Easter story. There's one lesson that we learn. Never put a period where God intends to put a comma. Can I say that again? Never put a period where God intends to put a comma. He's not through with you. I don't know what you're going through. But I do know that despite that, God gives us something special on this day. 
So Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you will be with every single person who is here today, every single person who hears this message, whether it's today or a week from day on the internet, I'm not too sure. I'm praying for a level of joy to come into our hearts, a realization of joy to come into our hearts and come into our hearts and to our lives and it will bless us. And despite the fact that we might be facing some of the hardest challenges of our life, there is something that we hold on to that is not based on emotion. It's based on the truth of the resurrected God. I ask God that you will move in a powerful way. If you are here listening and you don't know Jesus, I don't know if you can truly know joy. You can know that joy today by asking him to come into your hearts, to forgive your sin, and ask him to be Lord of your life. So God, I just pray, Father, for whoever is listening at whatever state that they are in, that your blessing, the blessing of the Holy Spirit will bring forth hope and joy, and it won't be fleeting. It'll be something that stays there, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.